Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Thursday uh, to you and yours. Uh, fantastic show planned for you today. Uh, just two of our fearless soldiers, Royce White, Steve Kim, uh, joining us uh, today. I'm going to get right to the fire. Uh, <clears throat> I've been burning. It's been smoldering overnight and this morning over uh, social media. Uh, I'm a little pissed off uh, with uh, President Obama, and, and I want to get into this Uvalde uh, mass shooting and how President Obama uh, connected it to George Floyd. But you know what? Let's just start the fire, get things rolling. Uh, yesterday, Barack Obama wrote and published the dumbest tweet in the history of Twitter. The former president stood George Floyd on the dead bodies of 19 slaughtered children. Here's what he wrote over Twitter. As we grieve the children of Uvalde today, we should take the time to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer. His killing stays with us all to this day, especially those who loved him. President Obama wasn't done, he went on. In the aftermath of his murder, a new generation of activists rose up to channel their anguish into organized action, launching a movement to raise awareness of systemic racism and the need for criminal justice and police reform. Obama then told his 132 million Twitter followers how they could get involved with reimagining policing. George Floyd's death certainly reimagined policing. You can see the consequences of St. George's reimagined police force in the reluctant and deliberate reaction to 18-year-old psychopath Salvador Ramos entering an elementary school and opening fire on second, third, and fourth graders. Ramos killed 19 kids and two adults because he had nearly an hour inside the school without facing resistance. While children were gunned down, police stood in the parking lot for close to 40 minutes debating what, what exactly to do. They rejected man's natural masculine instinct to sacrifice their safety and lives in protection of women and children. Man's instincts have been reimagined in the last two decades. We've been told by the left and feminists that our masculinity is toxic. Police have been told by the Democratic Party and radical political activists that George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Rayshard Brooks, Eric Garner, and Breonna Taylor's trigger-pulling boyfriend are the real heroes and law enforcement is the villain. We've incentivized police to stand down, stand back, and give criminals a safe space to work out their frustrations, smash and grab, shoplift, argue over routine traffic stops, and murder. Obama's veneration of George Floyd is an outgrowth of a cultural rot sweeping America. We've made heroes of men who contributed nothing to our society and demonized men whose jobs require them to risk everything. Having lost a close relative to police misconduct, I can empathize with George Floyd and his family. I feel sorry for George Floyd. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin should have taken his knee off Floyd's back far sooner. Chauvin's misconduct likely contributed to Floyd's tragic death. But the last nine minutes of George Floyd's life do not make him a hero. Heroes are not made laying face down in the street, high on fentanyl, gasping for air. Heroes charge into burning buildings to save the lives of people they do not know. Heroes are killed after they pass legislation ending slavery and segregation. 
Heroes work two jobs to provide for their kids, suffer through marriage counseling to honor their sacred covenant, and coach Little League teams. Heroes have far more on their resume than victim. Floyd's resume is littered with bad decisions, petty crimes, occasional violence, and pornography. Barack Obama wants to romanticize George Floyd. It's not surprising given Obama's own resume. He's mixed race, half black, half white. He grew up in Hawaii, raised by white people. He attended elite schools, including Harvard. Obama desires street cred, but he knows absolutely nothing about the streets other than what he gleaned from watching his favorite TV show, The Wire. Obama naively thinks George Floyd is the Wire character Bubbles, a well-intentioned, gold-hearted dope fiend. The truth is, based on his criminal record, Floyd is more like an older, just-released-from-prison version of Marquise Bird Hilton, the violent enforcer Omar Little framed for murder. I'm not arguing that Floyd got what he deserved, but no one on the streets cried when Omar lied about Bird in court. But the game is out there, and it's either play or get played. There you go. The game is out there. It's either play or get played. You swallow enough drugs, commit enough crimes, resist arrest long enough, and the game is going to get you. That's what happened to George Floyd. Anyone with an ounce of street sense knows this. Obama's sense is all political. It's not street. He and his political teammates are promoting chaos within the United States to force this country to get on board with the globalist agenda and new world order. America must fall. There's no quicker path to destruction and chaos than the undermining of law enforcement. The demonization of law enforcement and celebration of criminality are as intentional as the feminization of American men. Men are being baited to reject their natural masculine instinct. With the same number of firefighters running to the burning World Trade Center towers in 2022, as did in 2001, I'd say the number would be cut in half, if not more. Two decades ago, men were rewarded and celebrated for acts of heroism, acts of masculinity and patriotism. Back then, we still saved our highest praise for the men and women who at least tried to do the right thing. Today, the promoters of immorality share and or dominate our biggest stages of adulation. Snoop Dogg Crip walking during the Super Bowl halftime show was portrayed as a sign of progress. Cardi B, she got a one-on-one -on -one interview with presidential candidate Joe Biden. George Floyd is more revered than David Dorn or any cop. Police officers do not earn huge salaries. We augmented their salaries with respect and reverence. Now that Obama, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and corporate media have eliminated respect and reverence from a cop's paycheck, should we not be surprised that law enforcement is more reluctant to risk their lives? What happened in Uvalde, Texas is no different from what has been going on in America's major cities in the aftermath of George Floyd. Police officers are reluctant to engage with criminals and violent crime has skyrocketed because of it. As Barack Obama pretends to grieve for the children in Texas, he should make time to recognize that America's emotional and immature reaction to George Floyd contributed to the slaughter of 19 little kids. That's my fire. And uh, you know what? I, I'm, I, I'm not gonna, 
I, I'm going to just bring Royce in. I want. I, I don't have to expound on. Well, I'm going to expound on it with Royce, but I don't need to add to that. It's embarrassing what we've done to men, and uh, I don't want to sound like I'm caping up for those police officers uh, in Uvalde. But, but what did we expect? There's no rewards for being a hero, for sacrificing your life, for doing the right thing. We're handing out all of our rewards to people that do the absolute opposite, the wrong thing. Nothing on George Floyd's resume said we should be two year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Royce, uh, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I, I want to start here on a, I, I just want to start here. And, and am, am, am I giving too much grace? Am I making an excuse for those cops down in, law enforcement officers down in, in Texas? Uh, again, I, I'm really not trying to defend them but I am trying to get people to understand what the culture has created. It's turning men into cowards. Well, I don't think you're being uh, uh, too hard on, on the police officers in any way. And, and I think that people should understand that that culture conditions people and, and the global effects, the local and, and, and the, the country, the nation, the overall spirit and morale, uh, the, the ethics and, and morals of, of people are, are downstream from the culture that we set. Um, and, you know, but by and large, I've said before and I'll say again that I believe policing in this country has, has become a political ping pong between the state and the free people often used or exploited by the state to cement authority over we the people versus the police having their own autonomy and thus uh, uh, keeping their oath to the Constitution. And, and that has come as a part of a trade, a trade-off that we the people gave police uh, where, we, where we give up our freedom and, and authority and sovereignty as citizens for, for materialism and security. And these are all consequences of, of, of that quid pro quo between coward, cowardly citizens who, who need the police to protect them instead of protecting themselves, ensuring their own security, and a police department or a police culture that has become subject to a much grander design of people that want to undermine this nation. Well, Royce, and I know we have divergent, somewhat divergent opinions on George Floyd and, and Derek Chauvin and what happened there, but I, I do, and this is part of my concern with the whole George Floyd thing and just the whole Black Lives Matter thing. Police officers, to some degree, when they join the law, law enforcement, they're not thinking about making a bunch of money. Uh, maybe they do have some kind of Napoleon complex or whatever they like to be in authority. I, I don't know. But I think one thing is their instinct is they want to confront, engage, and put down the bad guy. And that's part of their, nat that's the instincts of man and, and joining the police force. And we have, in my view, gone way overboard and said, you know what, you're actually the bad guy and you need to uh, do more thinking about how you actually engage criminals and make sure you bend over backwards and make sure that every need of the criminal is met. And if the guy wants to jump out and be disrespectful to you for pulling him over, if he wants to resist arrest for 30 minutes, you better damn sure keep your cool and do everything perfect. And just if George Floyd's high on fentanyl and for 30 minutes he's giving the cops hell, you got to ignore all that. And, and, and if, if you, and because what I've always believed about Derek Chauvin is there was a legitimate manslaughter case. There was never a legitimate murder case. I do think uh, Chauvin should have gotten up off of him. I do think he lost his cool and should have paid the price for that with manslaughter. But, but uh, long-winded way of just saying, we have backed police down and what, I, what we saw in Texas is 
just an outgrowth, a symbolic of what a symbol, a symbol of what we're seeing all across America in major cities in small examples everywhere. Police are backing away from criminals and that's why violence is skyrocketing in these major cities. Well, I don't think that you and I have really divergent views about George Floyd or, or Derek Chauvin at all. I think that Derek Chauvin, look, there are bad police officers, and I think that Derek Chauvin would certainly qualify as a bad police officer, and there are a number of them across the country, many of them. Uh, what what amount is, is sort of unquantifiable, if you ask me, but I think there are plenty of good police officers. The question is, how much authority do we give our government? And how much authority or how much complacency with authority of the use or the use of authority are we okay with uh, regarding our police department? And, and the major letdown or undermining of policing across this country is not so much at the point of interaction with citizens, but it's in the way that police are trained, the way that police are funded, and uh, the moral and ethical decay that has seeped in. Uh, at the grassroots level all across this country and made it increasingly hard for police to do their jobs because crime is widespread and it is getting worse. So it's a very slippery slope and, and tough, tough answer to, to try and determine how much how much authority we cede over to a government that we know means to undermine our freedoms and rights and, and how much we give them to, to safely and efficiently protect communities. Um, and, and I think the this mass shooting is is an anomaly and mass shootings are anomalies in general, but still a, a question that needs to be answered. Royce, uh, I now want to move to President Obama and his tweet. I, I, I sincerely, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I think it's one of the dumbest tweets that's ever been put out there. Uh, I, I think to in any way, hey, I know you guys are grieving about these 19 slaughtered children, but make time to think about what happened to George Floyd two years ago, I, I, it's the dumbest, it's clearly divisive, yeah. uh, but I've already stated all that. What is Obama doing here? W what's the agenda in your view? Well, first off, there, there is nothing worse that I could think of than 19 kids being murdered at their elementary school. Um, you know, th this is the result of a spiritual war that we are losing in grand fashion. And, and, and this is demonic possession at large. Um, a, a close second to the tragedy that we've seen this week is when hypocritical, anti-human, globalist figureheads use that tragedy to push their own their own agenda and 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 political ideas and that's exactly who barack obama is he is the poster child of anti-human globalist politics and and where does george floyd fit into that fits in perfectly he is also the poster child for uh grievance and identity politics he is the the example the embodiment of you should vote Democrat because we nominated and elected a black man to be president. Therefore, you should trust us and, and you should believe that we are not racist and, and we are uh, not sinister or malicious or evil in any way. And, and it's a complete lie. Um, you know, as far as Barack goes, who killed Muammar Gaddafi? Right. Barack, I mean, answer that question. Uh, what about what about the children that died in all of the signature and double tap strikes, drone strikes when we were in the Middle East? Uh, you know, he justified those things unequivocally. Uh, so, you know, th th this entire ploy about taking gun rights, tied in with racism and, and, and policing is, is a part of a much grander scheme where he and his globalist friends from the World Economic Forum talk about greenhouse gases and, and carbon emissions and climate change and rising sea levels. But he buys a $10 million house on Martha's Vineyard, and, and he and his buddies fly around the world in, in private jets. Uh, he, he is the, the sine qua non of black bourgeoisie sellouts. Listen, uh, Obama's tweet, I think, is one of the dumbest in history. I also think Steve Kerr, and we talked about this yesterday, and we showed the clip, and I'm sure you've seen Steve Kerr's performance before uh, the Western Conference Finals where, you know, he did his little two-minute rant and uh, yeah. stormed off and, you know, 
you know, these, these senators are holding us hostage and all that. Uh, if who, who's the worst performer here, Obama or Steve Kerr? Oh, well, Steve Kerr is a basketball coach. I mean, Steve Kerr doesn't have nearly the moral culpability of, of Barack Obama. Um, you know, Steve Kerr is a liberal white woman and, and he's in an existential crisis. And it seems very clear to me. Um, you know, the, the problem with what Steve is seriously, there is a real problem with this entire argument around Steve Kerr's point of view. And what Steve Kerr doesn't understand and what many people in America don't understand that have this Second Amendment debate is the mechanism of the Second Amendment at the global scale. And often people use this list of countries that have more strict gun policies and, and have less gun violence as a way to, to try and undermine the utility of the Second Amendment here in America. But what they don't ever talk about, and this is Steve Kerr included, but many of these liberal left political pundits, is that the Second Amendment in America underwrites the sovereignty of over half the nations in the world. And that happens through two means our American military and our American taxpayer. We underwrite the freedom of, of the free world. That The United Nations is a vessel of America and America's power, okay? And, and really beneath the military industrial complex, which has been immoral in many times, and we should talk about that, but, but the American taxpayer as well, beneath it, we hold the single greatest strategic advantage in any war with any enemy around the world. And that, that advantage is that nobody will invade us here at home because we have three, 300 million plus guns. Nobody will win a ground war here in America because of the Second Amendment. And the founding fathers were brilliant in implementing the Second Amendment and ensuring that no foreign enemy dare invade us on our own uh, land here, here at home. It's a great point. I, I saw you make it uh, yesterday over social media, it's part of the reason I, I wanted you to, uh, you know, come on the show, is there seems to be just like a fundamental lack of understanding. Maybe it's because we teach history poorly in the country. Maybe it's because they just want to lie to us and, and they spew out all these lies. But, but that point you just made rang so true to me and help is like a big explosion because I understand the Second Amendment in terms of protecting us as citizens against our own government. You helped me to see it in a broader perspective and it's it and it should help people understand why in order for the globalists to achieve their agenda, new world order, uh, basically coming under China's influence, America must fall. America must fall for them to achieve their goals. And right. that's why getting the guns out of our hands is the key to America falling. 100% right. And, 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 you know, do we know whether or not our founding fathers were brilliant enough to see into the future in a way where they would know how expansive global governance would become and the threat that it posed to American citizenship? Well, we can never know that. But what we do know fundamentally about the Second Amendment is that the Second Amendment paired with the, the independent business owner makes America a nation of shopkeepers that is a bastion against economic imperialism and international or, or state-led tyranny. Uh, and again, China, Russia, whatever enemies, the World Economic Forum, Davos, NATO, none of these people would coalesce and attack us here on American soil in an occupied ground war. Yes, they attacked us with Pearl Harbor. Yes, they attacked us on 9-11. But no one would come to America in a sustained effort to subdue America on the ground because we have 300 million guns and we have well over 100 million people that are willing to use them in such a circumstance. Royce, you, you dropped in a little nugget that I got to get you to expound on because it's too important. But you talked about the independent businessman, the shopkeeper. That was my father. And so I, I don't think we're hammering enough that when Trump and Trump supporters talk about America first, 
that part of what they're talking about, these global corporations, Walmart running out all the little guys, McDonald's running out all the little guys, that that, that actually undermines America. And, and it's like, they, it's, to some degree, they've already won that war. And that's why they're coming for the guns now and, and the Bibles and guns together because, you know, the independent shopkeepers, the Second Amendment and religious freedom, those are the three things they're, they're coming under attack. But I, I would just like for you to expound on how important it was for a man to be able to start a business in his community, take care of himself, provide for his family. And, and we've seen all that go away. And now everybody's corporate, getting into corporate America. Global corporations is the big thing. And that's why freedom of speech is so weak, because these global corporations now are in control of what we can and can't say. But I want you to expound on it, please. Okay, well, let, let's talk fundamentals for a second. Globalism, f fundamentally, is an economic attack on citizenship by undermining the nation state. So when you go to a borderless society, basically what you do is you create an infinite pool of labor. And the middle class, the working class, are the stability of freedom the, the safeguard of freedom for any country against economic imperialism. But there's a third party in here. There's a dark horse in the bastion against uh, tyranny, economic imperialism. And that's the middle market. And the middle market is the one that's often missed when we talk about the globalist attack on America. We understand that they've traded uh, and sent all of our jobs, the labor, the manufacturing away from this country. But what people miss is that they want to go after the middle market, too. They want to go after the independent business owner. They want to turn all the mom and pops into Walmarts and Costco's and, and Google's and Apple's and Amazon's and, and, and so on and so forth. And what that does is it takes the ownership out of the hands of the American citizenship, out of the American citizen. When you no longer own the institutions that preside over you, when you have no real stake in them, you have no say in how they operate. I mean, it's just a fundamental uh, it, it, question and answer. Do we have any ownership over our citizenship? What is the value of our citizenship and what is the stake that we hold in it? And, and, I'll, and I'll make a point for Donald Trump here. The mainstream establishment, the globalist, anti-human, neoliberal, Marxist, anti-God, liberal establishment has painted America, make America great again, as some example of white supremacy. And it's the single greatest lie of our generation. What make America great again means and what it references is a time that many have forgotten or never knew about because history is so poorly taught, where America was the center of manufacturing. And that was another bastion uh, uh, against tyranny worldwide and a, and, a, and a cornerstone of our strength as a nation. We were the center of manufacturing. We had a trade surplus. Now, what my Republican counterparts won't tell you is it was the Republican Party and a Republican president that took us off the gold standard and opened up China, along with Kissinger, that was Nixon and Kissinger, that decided that China was the, 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 the great new horizon. Uh, and they knew that it would undermine America as a nation. And the entire globalist agenda has to uh, get rid of America as a cornerstone and pillar of freedom from here all the way to Beijing. I just want to piggyback off you a little bit and just summarize some of your point just in my own words. If you surrender ownership, you become owned yourself. That's what I hear you saying. And so, and then when I, and I think of this because you were such a great basketball player, I immediately go to the NBA and Draymond Green and LeBron James, they want to get rid of the word owner. It's negative. And it's like, hold up, man. Ownership is at the center of masculine energy and manhood. Because when I, when I heard them start making that argument, I immediately thought of Jimmy Whitlock, my father. And what made him get up out of bed every day was the fact that he owned his own business and people, oh, I'm, he's the owner of the Masterpiece Lounge. He's the owner of Jimmy's J Bar J. That, 
all of his pride, his dignity, his ability to see himself as a man came from ownership and being able to take care of himself. And I'm looking at NBA players, black NBA players. Yeah, ownership, that's a bad, that's racist. The ownership could be slave owners. But I don't like, these guys are retarded. That's all I could think of. They're retarded. No, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. They're not retarded. What they are doing is they are, they are doing what a lot of Americans have come to do. They've created virtue signal and faux outrage in the realization that they no longer have any control or governance over themselves or their community, their media community, because they traded their freedom for security and materialism. When Russell Westbrook has these outbursts where he gets overly upset at something that breaks out in the game or he's wearing a dress and that's supposed to be some sign of individual liberty and freedom or the entire feminist movement for that matter, under underwrites this, this psychological uh, uh, manifestation of faux outrage and virtue signaling. All you people have given up your freedom willingly. You surrendered your sovereignty willingly to a government that you believe will take care of you, will 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 protect your your interest economically, your, your guarantee your safety physically, and that you have no responsibility in that. Your only job as an American citizen is to be born and be in a rat race to see who can get more than the next person and become as detached from God as humanly possible. And in that, there's a deep spiritual despair and, and a deep spiritual desire to correct. But the failure to correct is these virtue signals and faux outrage that you see from, from black basketball players who, who know that they should, they should, they have not decided to walk into the wilderness of uncertainty around ownership because they like that the people in charge in the NBA are in charge. And they don't care if those people sell us out to China. That's the great lie. That's the great problem with Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr wants to talk about the, the sanctity of life or, or he didn't he, he didn't want to talk about the Uyghurs. He didn't want to talk about the concentration. camp. He still won't talk about the concentration camps. Right. So, so, you know, if you if you don't talk about the concentration camps, then what are we really talking about? Injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. It's just full outrage and virtue signaling. That's all. Royce, on this, I, I think there's a point you want to make connecting some of this to abortion. Dave Shannon uh, did it yesterday as it relates to the Texas massacre. Uh, and I think there was a point you wanted to address as it relates to abortion and how this all ties in. Yeah, well, I think the issue here that is being manipulated and, and, and misrepresented is what this entire tragedy is really about. Um, and it is a spiritual battle and we are losing and it is demonic possession. But some people don't even want to talk about demonic possession. Okay, well, what are we left with if we won't talk about spirituality and, and, and God versus Satan or, or the demonic versus the holy? Okay, well, then we're left with this Judeo-Buddhist framework that all of these neoliberals like to, like to you know, postulate, right? It's, it's all numerology and astrology and meditation and, and, and karma. Do we really believe, if you believe in karma, and you believe in energy and vibes and all of these buzzwords that my generation talk about with high frequency now on a daily basis on the Internet. If you believe in karma, do we really believe that there's no karma for the amount of, of, of innocent life we terminate in the womb? And is that karma not potentially playing out in the manifestation of, of people who have no sanctity of life? We've lost our sanctity of life. That's what this entire cultural decay is, is really rooted in, which makes abortion not just some fringe issue. It is the issue. The sanctity of life is the issue. Uh, but one thing I'll say, and this relates back to Barack Obama and the military industrial complex, the military has exploited the fact that nobody will attack us here at home to wage immoral unwarranted, sometimes unconstitutional warfare around the world. And so far as I see it, the abortion issue is a predicate for the military industrial complex to wage these wars and kill people abroad. See, that's, that's, the, that's the hook and hook, line and sinker that they won't talk about. That's the quiet part out loud. 
that Barack Obama and his globalist anti-human buddies are completely okay with the abortion being unconstrained because it gives them permission to kill faceless people, faceless individuals in shadows all across the world. So there is a link between the, 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 the impetus towards saying that a human life in the womb has no value in, in our military industrial complex and the, the, the authoritarian spirit of, of international governance to try and submit the free the freedom and free will of, of people. Well, Royce, you, you forgot that Barack won a Nobel Peace Prize. He was the peace president. You, 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 I think you're selling him short on that. Uh, but, but, but let me end the sarcasm. I want to do a little business and then come back and we'll do an approval rating on Barack, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, this is not a commercial. This is not another endorsement. This is a life or death message. Hi, I'm Jason Whitlock and here at The Blaze, we're building a village of Blaze babies with a goal of rescuing 50,000 babies from abortion. Let me tell you a little bit about Preborn and how they have rescued over 188,000 babies' lives. When a woman under pressure to abort her baby meets that baby and hears the precious heartbeat, it's a game changer because 80% of the time she will choose life. Preborn clinics are located in the highest abortion areas in the country, standing strong for mothers in crisis and introducing them to the beautiful life growing inside of them. Would you join us in rescuing preborn babies? It's one of the most important things you can do, helping to preserve these precious lives. One ultrasound is just $28, or you can sponsor five ultrasounds for $140 and save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate securely, call pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby, or go to preborn.com backslash fearless. That's preborn.com backslash fearless. Let's do it. Let's save babies' lives. Be a good, fearless soldier. We just had 19 babies killed. Let's today, let's you, me, and the fearless army, let's save 19. Let's save 190. Let's save 1900. Let's save some babies' lives today. Preborn.com backslash fearless or pound 250, keyword baby. All right, back with uh, Royce White and the approval rating. Uh, this is going to be very interesting. I can't wait to see uh, how you graded uh, President Obama here, uh, former President Obama here, Royce. Uh, we'll start with job performance, as we always do. Uh, I think he's uh, the president of the New World Order. He's a globalist, uh, and a, I'm, I'm just going to say it. I know I, I'm, I'm sorry for saying this, but he's president of shit-stirring and division. Uh, and I think he does a great job at it. So I'm gonna give him a perfect 25 uh, at promoting the globalist agenda and being a shit stir. Well, I went the complete opposite. I guess I took the question uh, the, the wrong way because I gave him a zero. <laughs> um, you know, he is supposed to be the commander in chief and, and leader of, of We the People, and he sold We the People out at, at every turn and chance he got. So I, I gave him a zero for, for job performance. Your rating makes sense as well, but I I'm dealing with the reality. He doesn't care anything about America or American citizens. Uh, character, uh, this will be interesting as well. I struggled, and, and, and this is a struggle for me because I'm, I'm someone that probably throughout his presidency had a great deal of respect for him. I didn't agree with him, but I had a great deal of respect for him, the way he carried himself, conducted himself. There was a lot of things that he did that I, I didn't respect, but now, what are we, six years after his presidency now? Uh, and where he's fully exposed himself and the ramifications of a lot of things that, that he did are crystal clear. Character, I, I give him a one. I'll give him one point. He had, he, you know, he's married. That takes some, that takes some character. He's pulled off a successful marriage on paper. So I'll give him a one for character. Well, you, you, uh, you and I are a little bit closer on this, on this question. Uh, I gave him a zero. 
Um, but 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 after uh, after further consideration uh, for the marriage uh, accounting, I, I'll give them one point. Actually, uh, that that's a great point to make. But um, uh, my initial score was zero because uh, to me, if, if you don't stand up for the ideals and beliefs that you promote publicly in front of the American people uh, when it counts most, then 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 you have no character. Uh, authenticity. Uh, I struggled here as well because I, I find him fraudulent and phony. And I think today's story, yesterday, his tweet uh, spells it out. Tremendous. My problem with him. I, I wish he were man enough to be who he is and who he was raised and developed to be. The guy is putting on this performance that he's the ultimate stereotypical black man never knew his father, raised by white people, educated predominantly around elite, rich white people. That's his point of view. It's great that he married Michelle and for a few years sat in Reverend Wright's church. Uh, but I find his whole black shtick inauthentic. Uh, none of his policies are intended to uplift uh, black people or the black family. I find him very inauthentic. I gave him a one in authenticity. Well, I gave him a zero. Uh, I think I think Malcolm Malcolm predicted the Barack, Ob Barack Obama types very well, and and saying that he is he is the house Negro, right? And and I do believe that he is the sine qua non of of black bourgeoisie sellouts, and and not only has he sold out the American people, but he's done it uh, on the back of, of of his black identity and and used black people as as the steam engine culturally to gain the approval to sell us out. Uh, it factor. It's hard to deny that he's got some star appeal and he draws a crowd. Uh, you know, people get excited. Hang on his every word. Uh, I'll give him a 22 in it factor. Yeah, I gave him a 25 myself in it factor. I think he's an, an absolute superstar when it comes to the commercialization of politics. He's uh, very intelligent, obviously Harvard educated, uh, incredible public speaker. Uh, he just used all of his talents and powers for the wrong things. Um, but but as far as it factor, he he certainly has everything that that creates a superstar in our modern culture. And it's a, a warning to heed for all of us about people who who have that star power. All right. Uh, final tally here. I've got uh, President Obama at a 49 candlelit. Uh, Royce has him <laughs> at a dumpster fire, a 25. Uh, thank you so much, Royce. Uh, great job as always. Get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com backslash fearless. Uh, the Korean Coke sell, Steve Kim. Dirks. All right, welcome back. Uh, time to roll out to uh, Los Angeles and bring in the Korean Cosell, talk a little sports, lighten things up a little bit around here. Uh, Steve Kim, welcome back. Colin Kaepernick got a tryout with the Las Vegas Raiders uh, yesterday. Oh, my God, this guy's got to be the perfect backup for Derek Carr and that offensive system. I mean, how could you do any better than Kaepernick? Uh, who hasn't played in five or six years. Uh, but on a serious note, would he be uh, a good backup for Derek Carr? That's an interesting question because one of the things that you have to have with a backup is a compatibility with the starter and the system that they run. Now, refresh my memory because it's been a while since Colin Kunte uh, actually played the game of football back on the NFL plantation. But uh, wasn't his strength kind of playing out of a spread shotgun and using his legs and using things like the inside read or the read option and, and getting him out of the pocket? It, it, that's not really Derek Carr's game. Derek Carr at his best is a guy that could throw the ball on time, uh, make some plays with his legs within the pocket by extending his time as a passer. I don't know. Uh, this is interesting. This is a move that certainly Mark Davis's father would have made because he was the renegade franchise about rehabilitating careers and extending careers. 
and being an oasis or a refuge for castoffs of the National Football League. I'm not really sure the Raiders are that organization anymore, but I'm interested to see it, believe it or not, Jason. I've said it for a while, and I think you've agreed. I would like to see Colin Kaepernick actually play the game of football and see if he's any good or if he's disastrously bad, which then kills his whole narrative of the past five, six years. Because I believe he didn't sacrifice his career for the movement. He picked up the movement because his career was flagging. So let's find out what he has left in the tank. Colin Kunte would never get on the field. Uh, what I call him? Kunte? I'm going to combine Kunte <laughs> Kente. Colin Kente uh, would not get on the field unless Derek Carr got hurt. And so, you know, or it was a, an incredible blowout. The, the other reason why I would say it's a bad fit is, uh, you know, Kaepernick's a Marxist uh, and Derek Carr is a devout Christian. And mm. I, I just don't see the personality fit. I, I just don't. Adding uh, Kaepernick to that quarterback room and making your devoutly Christian quarterback have to pretend like he's on board with Colin Kaepernick seems like a mistake and a joke to me. But, I, you know, I, I don't get it. Steve, why won't this story go away? Honest to goodness, the guy's been out of the league for five years. We've never, I don't know if we've ever seen an NFL quarterback sit for five years and come back and, and people, oh, yeah, he'll be better now uh, or he'll be just as good. Why won't this story go away? Because, look, for better or worse, Colin Kaepernick has made himself into a bit of an iconic figure, and he does matter whether we like it or not. And for the better part of at least a year or two, he was one of the bigger storylines in the National Football League. What I find fascinating, Jason, is the dishonest coverage of what Kaepernick was by the end of his starting run with the San Francisco 49ers. I sent you some stuff from a tweet that was screenshotted. And again, these people have more receipts than CBS. How Mike Florio has flip-flopped. I mean, literally, Florio was trashing this guy as a quarterback. And guess what? They were valid criticisms and now Florio is basically acting as his publicist. And I, I just find that to be so dishonest. And this is another reason why people do not trust the media. Stuff like that. I agree. I saw something Florio Pro Football Talk tweeted out in the past 24, 48 hours about Kaepernick's a better quarterback than, than uh, I, I for, he listed about five teams, including Miami and Tua, uh, tongue viola and just it was like really R really that i think he houston whatever it's like how do you know uh, again to make that pronounced statement even if colin kaepernick in his final year was terrific five years later you're willing to stand yeah. on the table and guarantee that the guy is always oh, better than this guy he hasn't played in yeah. five years to me, it, it, it speaks to how little Mike Florio actually knows about the game of football and its degree of difficulty. He's clearly never played it. He's clearly never coached it. And he clearly knows very little about it if he thinks a guy, quarterback sits out for five years and, oh, he's better than all these guys that are playing in the NFL. Sounds very clueless to me. Uh, uh, Steve, I want to transition. There's a lot of conversation about the NFL perhaps scrapping the Pro Bowl, which hmm. they need to do. Uh, the players, it's not a tackle football game anymore. The players make too much money. They're all afraid of getting hurt. And so it's a horrendous product. I have an awesome suggestion. It's like Rich Eisen, who I respect, tweeted out something about, hey, the, the, the uh, Pro Bowl they should have football players do the dunk contest and NFL players play flag, or NBA players play flag football. They should combine it with NBA All-Star. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Are you, th the solution is easy. And for guys of our generation, as soon as they hear my idea, they go, oh, they love it. The NFL should have a superstars competition mm like they used to have back in the 70s and 80s. 
I would do eight teams, a team of each division. For, so, you know, the, the NFC West would have a, a team uh, that com- of their best players competing in a superstars decathlon-type competition. You, you film bits and pieces of it all week, maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You, you hold the finals on Friday, and you take the first three days of taping, and you, you film that and put it out there Sunday, and then you go live to the final competition. I would love, I love the superstars. It was one of my favorite shows during the summer to watch. I was fascinated by who would win. I think they ran a 100-yard dash, or did they run a 40-yard dash? I couldn't remember, but that was always fascinating to me and see them lift weights and all that. NFL Superstars competition, remove the football and just make them compete in a decathlon. I think people would love it. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. It also harkens back to the era. Another show that I used to watch all the time was Battle of the Network Stars, where Robert Conrad always would just like like heroically lead NBC to a first place finish. The Superstars idea is pretty good. Um, You know what I think the Pro Bowl really started to change is I remember there was a running back out of Georgia. And his name was Robert Edwards. He had this really nice, big year for the New England Patriots. And he's at this beach volleyball game or a flag football game, and he just wrecked his knee. And it ruined his career. And it was at that point the players even said, wait a minute. Even the fun stuff is dangerous. And, Jay, I don't know about you. I'm assuming that you were a hardcore watcher of the Pro Bowl. All throughout the 80s and mid-90s, if you go on YouTube and you actually watch that game – those guys were playing hard. I mean, it was actually a real football game. And I guess the last time someone tackled anybody in that game was Sean Taylor just lighting up a punter. I think his name was Brian Mormon. And everyone treated Sean Taylor like he committed this crime. Hey, you're playing football. Nowadays, it is unwatchable. Now, for your superstars idea, it's a good idea in theory, maybe even in practice, But look, these guys went through a long season coming off of a training camp. They're beat up. They may not actually want to do anything. You'd actually have to have some specific money involved and raise the stakes. Because I I don't know if these guys want to exert any more energy coming off what is a brutal regular season where they've actually added one more game now. And the guys that have made the playoffs, they just may not want to do any. look, Look, most of these guys... Don't even take the trips to the Pro Bowl anymore. Think about it. It used to be an incredible honor to get to Honolulu. Nowadays, you announce the team, and two weeks later, guys are just pulling out. So unless you have the idea with a financial reward, then you have something. Look, you got four teams in each division. You'd probably have a team of 12 to 15 players for each team if you can't find 12 to 15 guys and some stars and then the other thing i would move it back to honolulu that's the other thing they did that ruined it i'm the pro bowl in honolulu is one of the greatest sporting events to attend to be there all week to party the it's it's incredible it blows all the other all-star weekends away Move it back there. Because, again, it used to be a big yeah. deal for the guys. Hey, I'm going to Honolulu. The, the players look forward to it. Uh, again, the riffraff is elevated because you got to fly there. It, it's an amazing it, – it, it's one of the funnest. I probably went to six Pro Bowls, and I loved every mm. one of them. Uh, so, uh, But let me move on to a bigger topic we'll spend more time on here Uh Javon Kinlaw, have you seen this story? He and a 49ers reporter, I believe his name's Grant Cohn. I've reached out to Grant. I want to try to get him on this show. Uh, They've been going at it, or Kinlaw has been going at Cohn. I did a lot of research last night, this morning, trying to get to the bottom of this or who's really at fault, uh, because Kinlaw makes a complete fool out of himself and the 49ers organization. He went on this guy's live stream and basically threatened him. Uh, mm. and, and I've seen some people in the media try to paint it like, well, Cone's a troll and he deserved it. And certainly there's been 49ers players 
uh, jump on that bandwagon and you know trash this guy. But I find uh, Ken Law's actions indefensible. Let's play a cut. I think TMZ or someone put out a clip of the live stream of of Ken Law, a defensive end for the 49ers, jumping on this guy's live stream, confronting him and threatening him. Let's play that. Somebody got to press you, fam. You like to come on here and try to bully people on the internet. But when I press up on you in person, you shaking like a coward, voice lighter than my baby, fam. What's up with that? What's up with that, fam? You think I'm scared of you, Javon? Fam, I don't give a if you are or not. All I know is when I walked up on you, your body temperature was cold as ice. Straight bitch. Body temperature. Straight bitch. Straight bitch. Balls shriveled up. Good. Hey, Javon. Stop do you think, playing with me, bro. Javon, Stop do you think you're representing me, the 49ers well right now? Me on this internet, bro. Javon, Stop do you think the 49ers are internet, proud like of what you know you're saying me, right now? Stop playing with me like you know me, bro. Mm. So I just I want to put some context around this to, to, to some degree. That's a bad look for the 49ers. It's a bad look for Ken Law. However, this is what has gone on inside locker rooms. Now it's just getting exposed for years. Players get upset. I was a guy that pissed off players. Andre Risen threatened to assassinate me. Uh, Marcus <laughs> Allen. Marcus Allen had to be uh, tackled by teammates. He wanted to jump on me. Uh, linebacker Tracy Simeon. We ended up becoming very good friends. Uh, confronted me in the locker room and threatened me. Uh, Wayne S- Wayne <laughs> Simmons. Wayne Wayne Simmons. Wayne Simmons. Yes, I was about to say Wayne Simeon, basketball player at Kansas, but Wayne Simmons, linebacker, uh, caught me at this is back in my strip club days. Caught me at Diamond <laughs> Joe Strip Club and. Came running through, he saw me, came running around the corner and literally was like diving at me. And the security guards uh, that worked at the club, me and the owner were best friends. They dived and tackled him right, and the guy basically kind of lands in my lap. Wayne Simmons wanted to kill me. And Wayne Simmons is one of the most dangerous people to ever play in the NFL. And And so, I say all that to say I brushed it off and so did they for the most part that like this was the price of doing business, the price of being an outspoken columnist. I didn't want people to throw a big pity party for me. Uh, it's I was the outspoken columnist in Kansas City and I took a lot of heat. And so I, I, I'm not sure, you know, again, Ken Law, this is a horrible look for the 49ers, horrible look for the NFL. And those types of threats, particularly made in public, when we're seeing individuals in Texas, in New York, in different places, snap, it's kind of scary. And so I, I guess I'm asking, you know, should the 49ers cut bait with uh, Javon Kinlaw? I think he's lucky to have a job based on his lack of production. It's one thing to be a pro bowler or even just a solid player that's productive to get away with that. I I did not even know who he really was, and I looked up his numbers, and I'm like, oh, geez. You're lucky that John Lynch is very forgiving, and I guess John Lynch set up a powwow between these two guys, and they at least hashed it out, or so they thought, Till Kinlaw made it clear that nothing is settled between us. But, you know, it's interesting. You're right. This has gone on for years. I remember my good friend, Doug Krikorian, with, with the L.A. Times. He got chased around the practice field by Isaiah Robertson, who had a longtime linebacker. And Doug Krikorian never knew he could One run One of my favorite four. players. Right. And uh, <laughs> Doug, Doug did not understand he could run a 4-3 until he had to. One of the most famous outbursts ever was when Bobby Bonilla was with the Mets, when they were just this miserable, sad, decrepit franchise, right? And I don't know what this older black reporter had said. And Bobby's getting dressed in his locker room. He had one of the great quotes. Yeah, man, step to me. As we say out home, we just chilling. And I'm like, whoa, Bobby. I always thought Bobby Bob was this jovial, happy guy. It was Barry Bonds who was the angry guy. Bobby was always the friendly guy on the Pirates. And I'm thinking, Bobby Bobby kept it there. Um, I remember Chris Webber, when they revealed that he was dating Tyra Banks in Sacramento, 
And the way he spoke to the reporters, it did not sound like he graduated from Country Day High School. He got Detroit on that one. He got Detroit. He went all the way into Detroit, Cronk City Gym, right? So this has happened, but this is my point. And I'm going to look at it from both directions. A lot of the players, the teammates of Kinlaw are standing up for him, saying this guy's a troll. He does it too much. He looks for confrontations. Maybe that's a fair point. What I don't like is when players say, you only dehumanize us. You only look at us as players. Hello. Hey, guys, you guys get paid a lot of money as players. That is your profession. When when a Jason Whitlock, a Steve Kim, or a Grant Cohn cover an athlete, we don't really care about anything else but their performance. That's the reality. I am sick and tired of these athletes saying, well, you dehumanize us. No, we don't. We don't care about the other parts. There's never been a player that I know of, Jason, that has played poorly and has been given a big contract extension because the owner said, well, this guy's a great husband and he goes to all the PTA meetings and he saves kittens from trees. Guys, you can't have it both ways. You get paid on your talent. And when you leave a city, you take your talents, not you as a person, you take your talents to that franchise. But then when there's any criticism, it's like, well, we're human too. You are human, and no one is saying that you don't deserve respect. But there comes a point in time you have to be accountable because when you are a San Francisco 49er or any other player in any professional sports, you are judged on your performance. Now, with that said, as a media member, I think we all have to be careful, and I think we've all made the mistake of being gratuitous. You can be factual, but if you hammer it home every day, or simply too often, you could make the argument that now at that point, you are being a guy that taunts and pokes at the bear. So there is a fine line between critiquing and being someone that is gratuitous within that coverage. Steve, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here because I'm sure Chiefs players and guys I cover in the NFL, because I, I literally was just thinking about more and more guys from first NFL game I ever covered. First NFL game I ever covered, Lawrence Taylor threatened to beat me up. He was playing against the, the Colts. It was Jeff George's, one of his first games as a member of the Colts, and Lawrence Taylor hitting my ass question, but I'm thinking of Keyshawn Johnson getting mad at me. And just, anyway, I, I was a guy I used to write these report cards at the end of the season grading every Chiefs player, and I would write some of the most hilarious, mocking. It was what I was known for. And, and again, I dealt with the consequences of that. I knew, and because at that time I was young, and I, yes, I went to the same nightclubs, Me Casino, and all the other places that the players went. And I knew that I went to the part, me and Derek Thomas were friends. And so that's, Andre Risen actually threatened to kill me at a party that Derek Thomas was throwing. And, and so I knew I was running the risk and that was a part of being young and dumb. But I, 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 I just, the players have to understand. Javon Kinlaw has to understand. Grant Cohn has zero to do with whether or not he makes the San Francisco 49ers. Zero to do with whether or not he plays well for the San Francisco 49ers. And so uh, Kinlaw has to be man enough, mature enough to ignore Grant Cohn and his coverage and just do his job. Instead of allowing Grant Cohn or some reporter to determine his emotions and his behavior, Javon Kinlaw has to man up and d determine his own behavior and not just be some doll that can be wound up by some reporter. And, and so uh, what I see, Kinlaw thinks he's being the ultimate man. I'm confronting him. I'm going on his live stream. He didn't do nothing but make this guy more popular yeah. and show everybody that, hey, I have so little emotional control that this guy who has nothing to do with my job, he can wind me up make me, my family, my organization look stupid and embarrassing. I just see a lack of emotional maturity. I just, it's not, he thinks he's being manly. I don't, I don't see it. Jason, I, I'm going to have to go through your, your archives 
It, it just got me out just talking about Andre Bad Moon Rising. Think about it. <laughs> Left Eye literally tried to burn his house down. Remember that lyric? Roof's on fire, but my name's not Left Eye. But he was angrier at you than Miss Lopes. What in the world did you say about him? <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, but <laughs> seriously. So here's the, here's the other part that I want to get to. Too many athletes now, and this is part of the coddle culture, and I see this in boxing a lot. Everything is now about access, and I'm not so sure that the media is even allowed to be hard-hitting as they once were and to be able to tell the blunt truth. And I don't know how many younger media members want to be a young Jason Whitlock circa 1990 to 2015 that was on the front lines, that got into the trenches and had back and forth exchanges. A lot of these media members to get the access they want to be able to get the coverage or to have viral moments on social media, they have to kind of get cozy with the people they cover. And I've mentioned this before. There's a fine line between being a media member and being a full-blown publicist. And they say, what is the difference? Look, you can be very complimentary of a subject. If a guy hits 400, your coverage is probably going to be great as a baseball beat reporter. But the difference is, and they've said this before, the difference between being a journalist or a media and the publicist is that um, the publicist never writes anything that the subject doesn't like. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and, I, and this is the young advice, advice I give to fledgling young writers that come into boxing or they cover the sport via YouTube. Every once in a while, you have to be willing to say something that makes everybody uncomfortable. They may not like you for it. And if the next time they see you, they don't want to talk to you, you have to deal with it because it's important for the credibility. But I do believe nowadays athletes are so used to kid gloves treatment that even now legitimate criticism is looked upon as quote unquote hate. Thank you, Steve. Awesome job. I hear tomorrow. That means we'll see you tomorrow. Making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving, all receiving. We all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want.